Welcome to Football with Grant Wall. Thanks so much for joining me. Today's interview guest is Matthew Wolf, the leading soccer badge designer in America, who has done the crests for LAFC, the Oakland Roots, and now Racing Louisville, among others. We've had some great interview guests lately, including Jurgen Klopp, Josie Altidore, and Lori Lindsay, along with many others. So check those interviews out if you haven't before. It would be absolutely huge for this podcast growth if you could subscribe, recommend us to your friends, and take just a little bit of time to rate and review us in Apple Podcasts. We'll have Matthew Wolf on soon here, but let's start with some soccer talk about the weekend with my friend Daryl Grove of our partner podcast the total soccer show daryl thanks for joining me how are you i'm good thank you grant i'm worried about you i think oh, oh no based on your tweets i think you're watching too much soccer weren't you watching two games at once at one point in the last few days <laughs> it is a luxury and uh and quite wonderful to be watching this much soccer but it's a lot right i mean you're, yes. you're watching about the same amount i assume yes but i never watch two at once because i just get too confused i i get confused about who's in which game and what's going on i just can't cognitively process it i don't think yeah I, it's been tough in the evenings when you've got nwsl and mls yeah uh, going on at the same time and and i've Tried to be on top of of both. We even had two MLS games at the same time yep. uh, on one occasion. <laughs> and I've actually, I've enjoyed the NWSL tournament. We'll get to this a little bit later here. But uh, I do think the games, like, you know, a lot of zero zeros. Uh, and I think the players have gotten a little tired yep. out there. Uh, that's been a, a little unfortunate. Uh, obviously, we've seen some wild games in some of these MLS contests, which are very MLS and, and entertaining and fun. Um, but yeah, I mean, you know, before too long here, soccer's going to slow down again. So we might as well uh, enjoy it while we can. <laughs> Feast while the buffet's open. <laughs> so let's start, if it's all right, with uh, the FA Cup semis yeah. over the weekend here. I got to say, I came into this not thinking that the two London clubs would be in the final, but it's going to be Chelsea and Arsenal in the final after Chelsea beats Man United 3-1, Arsenal beats Man City 2-0. Let's start with, with Chelsea, Man United. This was nothing like the Man United team that I had been excited to watch over the last couple of months. What happened here? I think that Ole Gunnar Solskjaer, I haven't seen any quotes yet. I don't know if he's talked about this. I'm pretty sure that he's been picking the same 11 for the past few games, right? Yeah. And I think he knows there are two big games coming up, right? They play uh, West Ham on Wednesday and then they play Leicester on Sunday, which will be the Champions League decider. I kind of think he knew he couldn't keep playing the same 11 and he's prioritised the Champions League qualification. And that's why Greenwood didn't start, Martial didn't start, Pogba didn't start and so on. I mean, he did not pick his strongest 11, right? So I think he's, he was keeping players back for those Premier League games. I almost wonder though, because by, that, by the time that game had started, we had seen Leicester get waxed by yeah. Spurs. And Ooh. you'd have to think... I, I just wonder if, like, you're Ole, if I were Ole, I would have seen that and said, oh, maybe I can adjust my lineup now. Did coaches not think that way? I wonder if there's so much preparation goes into it and he's already told uh, which player, you know, he's told players they're starting. They've got a whole game plan in that, what, 3-4-1-2 shape with yeah. uh, Danny James and Rashford up front. Then maybe it's maybe it's too late to change. Yeah. I, it just seemed like from the moment I saw the lineup and then they came out flat um, and... You know, I thought Chelsea did a good job in this game. It seemed like, I don't have the stats in front of me, but it seemed like Chelsea won a lot of balls in Man United's end and took advantage of those. Yeah, I mean, they were willing to foul, to put it kindly, right? <laughs> there was a lot of pressure on the ball from Chelsea. They were really energetic and like weirdly disciplined, right, about always making sure Man United couldn't advance. And I think... Mm -hmm. If any anything did potentially open up, then they would just take a player down, especially Bruno Fernandes. I noticed uh, Jorginho and other players were just mm -hmm. quite happy to, you know, just trip or click the heels of uh, of Bruno Fernandes, which sounds terrible, but is a very effective solution to the Bruno Fernandes problem. He had a couple of moments in this game where I was just like, that's really painful to yeah. watch. Um, <laughs> and yeah, we got to talk about David De Gea. Um, yeah. You know, like, I still think he's capable of just tremendous plays like his ceiling for like 
what he can do in a, in a moment is extremely high. But too often, and it's been up for a while now, he makes some pretty simple mistakes that really hurt his team. That happened again today. I mean, I'd argue that only the second goal, right? The Mason Mount goal where Williams gives it away and Mount is able to dribble and then shoot at De Gea. That's the goal he definitely should have stopped. Correct. I think he sort of gets his fingers to it, but um, he doesn't get a full enough extension. There's maybe a bit of bend on the ball that means that the extension he did with his arms was the the incorrect length. But, you know, that's Mm -hmm. part of being a goalkeeper, right? You're supposed to get those things right, even if you're playing in an amateur league. Um, The other two goals, I I know the, the commentators, like, definitely got into a narrative of uh, this is all David De Gea's fault but those are the two goals are at really close range I think Giroud had a very clever like redirect flick from close range that beat De Gea for the first one so I don't blame De Gea for that and then the third one is obviously a Harry Maguire own goal which De Gea would not have been expecting so I'm not sure De Gea's performance was so bad but the second goal obviously is the it's not going to go in De Gea's highlight reel put it that way yeah obviously the second goal is the one that he really should have done a lot better on but Part of me thinks the first one, he like it wouldn't have surprised me if he had saved it. Yeah, I, yeah, I get that. Yeah, especially because that is part of what you when you think of an informed De Gea, it's about a lot of reflex saves, right? So you would yeah. h- hope that he would do better, I suppose. I, I'm personally excited, even though Christian Pulisic did not play in this game, that he's going to be in an FA Cup final. Yes, and, and and hopefully he'll be healthy for that. W- what do we know as of right now about Pulisic's health situation? Um, I saw, I think, an Associated Press story that essentially there'd been a small injury. It wasn't really uh, specific about what it was. And there's a Frank Lampard quote from this morning basically saying, uh, even with the injury to Pulisic, I feel like I've picked a really, really strong team. So it's definitely not a, I think Mason Mount is better than Christian Pulisic decision. And I kind of think we need to be beyond that, right? As US fans of worrying about whether Pulisic's in the team or not. I also, given the evidence of almost the entire season to look back at now I think Frank Lampard is a really good steward of Christian Pulisic's health (laughs) which I think is a good thing for us yeah I I just would like to see Christian Pulisic not pick up another injury especially at at this point yeah but um you know when you look at where Chelsea is at this point they're heading to a, a final in the FA Cup final that's good uh they're still alive, technically, in Champions League. And I'm actually, I, I, they're, they have very little chance against Bayern Munich in the return leg. But I'm yeah. kind of excited to just see how they approach that game because they're going to have to come out guns a-blazing, which yeah. could be a, a lot of fun. And they're in a great spot now to, to qualify for Champions League for next year. So I, I think if you're a Chelsea fan and you've got Timo Werner coming in and Ziyech coming in, and, and I keep seeing these reports about possibly Kai Havertz, um, I think you have to be feeling pretty good about things. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, especially the way things were at the start of the season, right? When they weren't able to make any transfers and there's a lot of young players starting games. I think they lost heavily to Man United in the first, the opening Premier League game of the season. So I think this game is maybe the uh, the evidence of where Chelsea are at after almost a full season. So Arsenal 2, Man City 0. I, I have admittedly some fun with my friends who are Arsenal fans (laughs) like yes they just beat Man City and Liverpool in the same week and and so whenever Arsenal has a week like this I'll say to my Arsenal friend fans are they finally turning it around because (laughs) they get this look on their face like they know you're sort of pulling their chain because they know that they're not fully turning it around and they really just want to enjoy this moment so shut up is kind of the response (laughs) (laughs) but you do it anyway but I do it anyway. It's really not cool, actually. Um, I still like am impressed that Arteta, given what he knows he has and doesn't have right now, put out teams that that won these games this week. And I know that Liverpool is not incentivized to do much of anything right now. And and in City, I, I just was disappointed by their performance, even yeah. though like. You know, obviously, said he had a lot more possession, more shots than Arsenal in this game. Um, but in terms of Arsenal, I just felt like they defended well. They put a lot of men behind the ball, but they've got some really talented guys up front who who performed in this game, and and I, that that was impressive to me. 
I mean, I have a strong tactical take on this game, which is I really think, obviously, Mikel Arteta knows Guardiola's uh, preferred style of play and the little things he prefers that happens during games because he was his assistant for so long, yeah. you know, a key part of that Manchester City setup. I know that one of Guardiola's favourite things and a, and a current Arteta favourite thing is to have centre-backs bring the ball out of defence when you're like, building an attack from, from starting from your own defence and to have those centre-backs... Um, attract attention from opposition strikers to sort of pull them out and create space, right? And mm. one thing that was really noticeable in this game is Lacazette, Aubameyang, um, and Pepe, like 95% of the time, just refused to engage with Garcia and Laporte when they had the ball. They made it very clear, we're not coming near you, we're not going to try and pressure you. But that gave Arsenal an extra three players to mark the rest of the team, right? So then mm-hmm. it's 10 outfield Arsenal players marking eight outfield Manchester City players and it ended up being just Laporte and Garcia desperately trying to find teammates and Arsenal blocking it off. So I think Mikel Arteta spending so long under Guardiola, um, he kind of learned the ways of the master and how to uh, how to turn that around or, or to use his preferred system against him. I think it would have been really fascinating to be a fly on the wall of Arteta's pitching this, you know, the strategy for this game to yeah. his players and coming up with that with his... Uh, with his staff, because that's the kind of stuff when when you know somebody as well as Arteta knows Guardiola at this point, and you know that Guardiola's got a counter for various things himself. So like it, it, both sides can do stuff. It would have been really fascinating to to be in there on the the inside of that preparation. Yeah, and that that was the disappointing thing, right? Is Guardiola, Guardiola did not seem to have a counter for this. I expected some sort of change of shape or change of approach, and City pretty much kept the same shape and approach for the entirety of the game. And just you know, you can see Guardiola leaning back at one point, just arms folded, just almost like he'd accepted that this wasn't going to work out today. It's a weird one. Does it does it change how you look at Champions League and City at all? Meaning, do I not expect them to be as successful as it looked like they were going to be? Yeah, because like I know it's it's just one game, but but man, I I, I just felt like this was disappointing from City's perspective, and this is the team that I was sort of along with Bayern. You know, they've been my favorites to to win Champions League. I, it's really weird, right? Because I'm still trying to figure out: is Guardiola using the remaining Premier League games to just work out this and that, ready for next season? Um, and and also the Champions League, which is sort of going to exist between seasons, right? Yeah. Um, but this was a game that it had to be won, right, to make the FA Cup final to win it. Like what we, what I was talking about with Manchester United resting players for the Champions League push to make sure they finish in the top four. Man City don't have that problem at all, right? So I don't see any reason why Guardiola like would have taken his foot off the gas in terms of going full tilt to win this game. So in that respect, yeah, it worries me a little bit because. If anything, this FA Cup semi-final is as must-win um, as any Champions League game, right? Yeah. So I mean, it's you know, it's a knockout game. Well, you know, one you're done. So I, like that to me has me a, a slight bit concerned about uh, about City and Champions League. Now, before we get to MLS and NWSL, uh, let's talk briefly about Leicester. Another dispiriting performance for them. Yeah. I, I thought they were guaranteed basically of finishing the top four. They get spanked by Spurs. Advantage now to United and Chelsea for the top four, even though Leicester does host Man United in the final game of the season. uh, They could go into that game, what, three points behind? Yes, if Man United win um, on Wednesday, yeah. Yeah. Um, And the way those teams are playing right now, I, I, I just wouldn't feel great about Leicester needing a win heading into that game especially if they need by a certain amount of goals. Um, what What's happened here to Leicester? And this isn't just in this game. Like They've had a, a couple of, of, of poor performances recently. Uh, this game is over at halftime. I think at least in this game, I can't speak to the bigger picture stuff because I've not really been able to figure it out. But at least in this game, there were a lot of key players missing. And I think you saw the lack of depth with this Leicester team, right? Like uh, Suyuncu, the, the Turkish centre-back, yeah. who's been so good this season, was missing. And you saw huge mistakes from Bennett. Um, I think uh, Son Heung-min put, put him on his butt, right? With a, with just a mm-hmm. simple turn. Um, Wes Morgan's playing centre-back. He is not the Wes Morgan of 2015, 2016, right? He's sort of um, definitely coming coming towards the end of a, of a really good career. Um, and I think both starting fullbacks were missing today, right? You had two, two young players replacing them. Well, and, and then also too, you're missing Madison, who yes. has has been 
terrific uh, this season. So Leicester was a lot of fun to watch before the restart. Since then, not so much. And I, I think it's really unfortunate, but I, I don't see them ending up in Champions League football. Maybe, maybe I'll be wrong. Maybe something amazing will happen. I'm just surprised that the league ends next weekend, and I'm not quite ready for that to happen yet. Uh, even though we're in July and the time-space continuum continues to be <laughs> completely screwed up. We don't um, have a start date yet, do we, for the next season? I'm assuming that will be coming soon. I don't know if we've seen anything official yet. I've seen various proposals over time. There's not going to be much time off, especially for the teams that play in Champions League, yeah. but even for the teams that don't. I, it's just going to be a very compressed preseason, and I I fear injuries, but yeah. I guess we'll see. Um, so MLS... Uh, Highly entertaining week in many ways. Uh, ridiculous games at times, <laughs> uh, but but generally pretty fun. And in we should also say zero positive tests down there in a while, which yeah. is uh, an example that as of as of now, it seems like the bubble has not had any spread inside the bubble. Yeah, uh, and safety's good. We like safety, and yes. it allows us to actually talk about the soccer. I, what is one thing that has stood out to you about the last few days in the MLS tournament? I would say youngish Americans getting goals. Right? Yeah. We've seen uh, Jeremy Abobasi, excuse me, has got a couple. Uh, Chris Mueller has been scoring. Um, I know Jesse Zardes isn't so young anymore. He's at 27, right? But Jesse Zardes has looked absolutely magnificent. It's a good reminder of all the things he does really well. Like really yeah. like clever running, uh, non-stop running, always making himself available and always being a threat to the back line. And Ayo Akinola, I believe, yeah. has five goals, right? <laughs> it's crazy, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> no, it's a good sign because when you look at the history in recent years in MLS of like who are the highest Americans on the goal scoring chart at the end of the season, it's often very few, yeah. <laughs> you know, you have to go down a ways and it's really <laughs> depressing, but uh, this is starting to suggest that change may be afoot. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. So yeah, that's been exciting to see. I've also enjoyed uh, watching Columbus crew. Um, so yeah. not just for the Zardes factor, but also Zellerayen. He seems to be forming a really nice partnership yeah. with Zardes and producing real moments of magic. And then Darlington Nagby. Um, yeah. I assume he's been brushing his teeth with regular tap water because he has really been enjoying himself playing uh, in that Caleb Porter system. Yeah, I mean, it's it's so far at least small sample size, obviously, but Columbus looks like they might be the class of the East. Yes, um, yeah. I was scared know, to say like, it, so I'm glad you were braver than me. <laughs> this is after, what, two games? Yeah. Um, <laughs> but, like, just in, I guess, a little bit of the games before the, you know, the, the restart, but... Um, you know, just disappointed so far with Atlanta, and maybe they will come around. They, they seem to really miss Joseph Martinez, um, and never in a million moons would have thought that Cincinnati would beat Atlanta, but that's mm -hmm. what happened. Frankie Amaya, by the way, nice goal. Yeah. Um, another young American. And then um, in terms of sort of one thing that stood out to me is just LAFC, and I know they beat what I think might be a really bad Galaxy team, 6-2, <laughs> to two. Um but LAFC may be the league's best team, even without Carlos Vela. I'll say it. Yeah, um, I, yeah I, I think I agree. Yeah, I think any Bob Bradley team, I have a lot of respect for Bob Bradley as a coach in terms of putting a style together and having everyone understand and buy into that style. That even though Carlos Vela has been this really standout player, there's never a sense watching LAFC that everything hinges on what Carlos Vela does, right? It's not as if you remove him and suddenly everything else is is just window dressing. Yeah, I, in... in whether it's Bob Bradley, whether it's John Thorrington, they just do a really good job of getting the right players in the mix that they have. And you yeah. feel like, like, and sometimes it's really young guys. You know, Rossi had four goals against uh, the Galaxy. Sometimes it's Bradley Wright Phillips, mm -hmm. like who I don't know how many other teams in the league might might have made that signing. Maybe a few, but he seems like he's in a position where he could really excel there. Yeah, I, I think it seems like a good role for him to not be what he has been over the last few years for New York Red Bulls, where kind right. of everything depends on him scoring goals, right? If he's like not the be-all and end-all in terms of LAFC goals, but can contribute when someone like Vela is missing or can fill in with rotations, like he's not going to start every game for LAFC, right? But he's going to be a really, really useful part of the squad. The, the concern I have with LAFC is still defending because... The way they play, 
they still give up goals. Yeah. And, and I do have some concerns that over the long haul, that can get you in trouble. Yeah, especially if it comes to a knockout game, right? In, in mm-hmm. MLS's back or in the MLS playoffs, like, you know, which is what we've seen over the last couple of years, right? Where they've had magnificent seasons, but then something has gone wrong uh, in the playoffs. Um, yeah, it's part of their sort of more expansive style, right? That sometimes they're a little bit loose, but they're not as bad at defending as the LA Galaxy. We can say that. <laughs> I think they got problems with the Galaxy, man. Like, I, I don't know. Like, I think they'll have some patience with Scalotto, but... They don't defend well. Um, they, you know, obviously Chicharito's going to be out for a little while now. I thought they would be more dangerous with Pavone, especially. Um, and I, I just don't have a sense yet that they they know how they want to play. Um, and I, I, yeah, it's still early, but like it's just it's just shocking defending. <laughs> against against LAFC. Yeah, Gonzalez and Steras had so many mistakes between them and the uh, the defensive line was really wobbly and like some players stepping high and some players stepping deep the whole time. Um it does it does make me wonder about Scalotto as a as a coach and like how like how much of a message is he and how many how much detail is he putting into what he's telling his players or how much is he enforcing what he wants and i mean he can't be asking the back line to play with that wobbly shape right now before we go to nwsl i i do want to have a special piece in my heart for the 4-3 game with uh san jose coming back to beat vancouver because I think it was the most peak MLS game of all time. <laughs> oh, I've got to confess, this is one I did not see. I have oh my not gosh. seen this game, right? Oh I, no! Just because of like something with scheduling, I didn't watch it at the time, and I thought I'll watch the replay. I'll watch the replay, and I just haven't gotten around to it. Um, so yeah, I can't. I can't really speak to this except that um, it sounds very on brand for you, MLS you, is back. You have a treat awaiting you when okay. you, des- you decide to watch the replay. It is the best bad game of all time. <laughs> I think. Because I was in tears watching this game, man. Like it, 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 it was unreal. Just the amount of ludicrous things that happened. <laughs> Whether it was just bad giveaways in the back uh, leading to goals. Whether it was uh, San Jose having basically ten men in the in the opposing box, and then a counter like into totally open space. I saw that, that ended, goal. That ended I was up being really confused by that goal. What, what <laughs> was San Jose doing pushing everybody up like that? I, I just, I don't know. I, I, I it, Like, it was just the most ridiculous highlight ever. But like, <laughs> and the fact that San Jose gave up two terrible goals and then came back to win the game. It was just great. I'm dying again just thinking about it. Um, anyway, uh, NWSL, Portland upsets North Carolina in the quarterfinal. That's your headline. Uh, from yeah. the weekend, one nothing there. North Carolina had been an absolute buzzsaw, undefeated in the four games of the group stage. And we had Lori Lindsay on the show as a guest last Thursday. And in a very clairvoyant moment, she said she thought of any team in that in the tournament that Portland would be the one that was capable of upsetting North Carolina. And she thought it could really happen. And it did. Um, and... Uh, the rest of the games, not so much to, to talk about. Uh, zero zeros and and went, you know straight to penalties and in, yeah. in all three. But and I, and I do think they have gotten tired out there, which is uh, unfortunate. I hope the semis and the final they have a little more time off now and, and can regroup and, and get ready for those games because I think overall the tournament's been good. Yeah. Um, but it was a little bit of a misnomer that Portland was the eight seed because they were the only team in the tournament that had actually scored against North Carolina in the preliminary round. And clearly there's talent on this Portland team with Lindsey Horan uh, in particular. Uh, but uh, did you catch this game? Did you have any thoughts? Yeah, um, definitely. Yeah. I mean, I think the, yeah, you're right about the eight seed thing. I think when you only play four games in sort of an eight team league, then none of the seeds are going to be that accurate. Right. Um, so I think I think that's worth, that's worth bearing in mind. I weirdly think of the four games, North Carolina of the eight teams put in the best attacking performance <laughs> of uh, of all four teams, and really they just they ran into Ekstrom, right? The, the yeah. Portland goalkeeper. Um, Portland actually, so yeah, Taylor and I analysed this game. We think Portland did a really good job of 
Um, letting North Carolina do the thing that the North Carolina forwards love to do, which is to break wide and then dribble in from there, right? Lynn Williams loves to do that. Mm -hmm. Um, But often there's then space for Lynn Williams to cut it back to like uh, Dunn and Dabinia. Crystal Dunn and Dabinia Mm -hmm. will be sort of crashing the top of the box from attacking midfield. But Portland had like a tight back four and then either three or four midfielders, depending on how you count Christine Sinclair's role, because she's more of a withdrawn than an actual striker now. Um, just having masses of numbers at the top of the box, there was just they just clogged up that box so that only shots from wide angles were available, right? Which, in a weird way, made it um, easy for Ekstrom to make some of those saves when Lynn Williams was coming in from an angle. Yeah. I, it's weird with Lynn Williams because... I get frustrated sometimes with her finishing ability, but then I also realize that she does amazing work to put herself in those positions and give herself those chances. And so maybe I shouldn't get quite as frustrated. And sometimes she does finish them. Uh, Here's my question about Eckerstrom. So I was trying to count all the goalkeepers that Portland has. So Adriana Franch is, has been their starter. She's not available for this tournament. Um, Bella Bixby has played in this tournament. Unfortunately, it sounds like she has an ACL now. Yeah. Uh, Eckerstrom played the best best performance I've seen by a goalkeeper in a long time, flat out. Yeah. Um, and Nadine Angerer, former World Player of the Year, German national team goalkeeper, former player in this league, uh, was ready and drafted for duty as a backup in this game because Bixby was out. So <laughs> it... One, that's a, that's pretty impressive how many good goalkeepers they have. But is it fair to call Eckerstrom the fourth string keeper, or is it, or is she not quite down that not not fourth third string? She's not, or she not quite down that low because Bixby used to be behind her. So I don't I don't know what the the back and forth has been with Bixby and Eckerstrom. Um, so I don't know whether it's fair to call her second, third, not fourth, right? Because Angara is like right, right. an emergency uh, setup. But she's certainly not first choice, right? It's Adriana French. Yeah. So I like that. Just kind of a cool thing about soccer, I think, that your, I'll call her third string goalkeeper, can have that big of a performance, uh, which was the performance of the round yeah. uh, by, by anybody. It's weird. Maybe here. all the drama was taken up in that first game, and there was not much drama <laughs> left for the, the following three games. Well, Daryl, uh, thank you so much, as always, for joining me. All of you listeners who, don't listen for some reason to the Total Soccer Show. You should check it out. The rest of you, I know, do listen to it, and they do fantastic work. Really appreciate you joining me. Thank you. Here's my interview with Matthew Wolf. Our guest now is Matthew Wolf. He's a standout in the area of design when it comes to soccer, having created the badges for, among others, LAFC, the Oakland Roots, the Charleston Battery, and the beautiful new one for the NWSL's Racing Louisville. He has also worked in-house for Nike and NYCFC, but he has his own operation now. Matthew, thanks for joining me. Grant, it's a pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me. Yeah, I'm so excited to have you on the show. Uh, I I was telling you before we started recording, we often have coaches and players who are great, but uh, I'm also a design aficionado and Congratulations on the design for Racing Louisville. It's absolutely fantastic. The colors, the the badge, the typography. Uh, could you lead me through a little bit of the process of how you experienced your work with the people in Louisville? Absolutely. First of all, glad that you appreciate it. Um, so Louisville reached out to me, and I've gotten used to saying Louisville and not Louisville. Yep. Uh, Louisville reached out to me. Uh, probably last winter, maybe December, January, um, about the NWSL project. And uh, what they emphasized right off the bat is that it was really, really important to the club that their supporters' voices be heard. Uh, They actually already have a USL club there, Louisville City, so they already have this big and dedicated soccer scene. Um, Some of the expansion clubs that I work with don't have supporters' groups that they can tap into, uh, that wasn't wasn't the case in Louisville. Um, so we went through tons of uh, focus groups with the community, probably more than I'd ever done on a uh, club's visual identity uh, project. Uh, so we met with everyone from you know U twelve girls and their moms to collegiate women's soccer players from U uh, of L and U K uh, to Louisville City season ticket holders. So they were really involved every step of the way, uh, involved in 
uh, the selection of the club name to the color to the imagery. So, you know, you never really know uh, when you finish uh, a Crest project how it's going to be received upon unveiling. But because the community was involved every step of the design process, we had a pretty good sense uh, that it would be well received. And, um, mm. you know, it's only been a week or so, but um, the, the true test for these things is, is um, how they stand the test of time and how they hold up uh, 10, 20, 40, 100 years down the line. So, so far, we're off to a good start. Yeah. How do you, I mean, were the colors already picked? Did you pick the colors? Um, what, what is your process on something like this? Yeah, the colors was an interesting one. Uh, so Louisville City uh, wear purple. They're the only club mm-hmm. in USL right now that has purple, so they kind of own that. So that was great. Uh, but NWSL has Orlando Pride, and they wear that exact shade of purple. And we didn't want to enter the league uh, with the exact same color as a, as a potential rival. So uh, we kind of came to this consensus that we should look at other shades of purple um, that could sit alongside Louisville City's uh, purple, but um, have an identity unto themselves. And to my knowledge, there are no uh, American sports franchises that wear a lavender um, or a a midnight violet, as we're calling it. Um, So to be able to be unique was really important um, for the identity and ultimately uh, for merchandise as well. And the mint green was interesting. Like, is is that something that came to you after trial and error? Where did it come from? So we did start off with just the two shades of purple, the lavender and the, the midnight violet. Um, and then if you add the Louisville City purple in there, then you're just awash in kind of a sea of purple. So I wanted to inject it with a color that would help it pop. Um, a color that could be interesting for kits and um, other apparel pieces. So uh, that mint green really made sense. There are no clubs in NWSL that are wearing any shade of green. Um, so to give it some energy, we added that mint green in. And f- the fleur de lis, the the typography, uh, like, is there a long process that leads to those things eventually? Yeah, it's all it's all part of the design uh, process. Um, the typography I wanted to, uh, it was important to me that the typography could sit alongside the fleur-de-lis, which are quite ornamental symbols. Uh, they kind of have these flourishes on the top and bottom. Um, so to, to bring in a typeface uh, that has uh, what we call serifs, which are the little feet mm-hmm. at the bottom of the characters, um, I thought would pair nicely with the fleur-de-lis. And the fleur-de-lis is, uh, you know, a, a symbol that's really omnipresent in Louisville. You know, they're on the city flag and they're on lamp posts. And at, in every single focus group we had, there was at least one tattoo, uh, one fleur-de-lis tattoo. So it, it made sense that that was part of the um, part of the crest. How long does all this take? It seems like, a, especially if you're doing focus groups and things like that, like this took a long time. Yeah, we started the process probably in late December, early January, and Mm -hmm. COVID definitely delayed things a bit. And look, there are going to be hurdles along the way that you can't predict um, with trademarks and approvals from the league and whatnot. Um, So this uh, this one took about six months start to finish. Um, But there's no set timeline for this sort of thing. Some are quicker and some take take much, much longer. And how many trips did you make to Louisville? Only one because of COVID. Uh, I would have gone back ah, okay. several times. Um, it's funny. They did a, I don't know if you saw this, Grant, but they did a, like a launch video um, that yeah. had, uh, well, I guess it was supposed to be me kind of walking in the Louisville, uh, Racing Louisville Club HQ, but... Mm-hmm. I wasn't. I didn't want to go down there because of COVID. So they found a body double there. So <laughs> it's just nice. kind of weird because, like, um, I think I'm kind of an obscure-looking guy, like quite short and kind of a weird mop of red hair. So I was like blown away that they found someone that looked from the back like me. Um, definitely had to ask my mom. I had to ask my mom if she uh, <laughs> had anything she needed to tell me. So you spoke to Meg Linehan for an article in The Athletic about the Louisville design, and you said it's different designing something for the NWSL because it's so young. 
In, in what ways do you think that difference manifests itself in, in, in what you do in the finished product? Yeah, the NWSL is, there's so much room for um, it to be different and it to be a more mm -hmm. creative league that um, blazes its own path. It doesn't have to do what MLS or USL or any or the WNBA has done. And I'm really bullish on NWSL. I, I, I really look forward to... Uh, it's growth. Uh, I love watching the women's game. Um, and creatively, from a, from a design perspective, uh, there's no reason that the, the crest and visual identities need to uh, emulate or be inspired by uh, men's clubs. I think there's a real mm -hmm. opportunity to do something different. So I am currently wearing my LAFC uniform shorts with the badge you designed. Uh, I collect soccer uniform shorts. It's my thing. Um, and, and there's clearly an art deco influence in the LAFC badge design. Uh, it's been a couple of years, I guess now, but like, how would you describe that process that you had with LAFC and how you arrived at what you ended up with? Yeah. So the LAFC project, I, I worked with two, uh, project managers called, uh, Tway and Ty Wynn. Um, and, uh, a fellow named Rich Orozco, who currently works at the club in the marketing department. And it was really important to us that at the heart of the crest was a unique L.A. And that that L.A. mark um, could be extracted and utilized on merchandise to stand for something way beyond the, an MLS club. And I suspect that not everyone that owns an LAFC cap knew that they were purchasing an MLS club's uh, merchandise, piece of merchandise. Uh, I think mm -hmm. some probably just thought it looked cool. Um, mm -hmm. And I always say that when I'm talking to clubs, that a strong crest can be a, a potent gateway drug to uh, a soccer addiction. So maybe you see that cap, that LAFC cap, and you buy it because you think it looks cool. But next thing you know, you're an LAFC season ticket holder and you're waking up at 4 a.m. to watch Premier League. Mm -hmm. So having that L.A. at the heart of the crest that could be extracted for merch um, was really important. Uh, it was something that could rival the Dodgers L.A. That's aspirational. Holy cow, that's ambitious. <laughs> <laughs> you got to aim high, Grant. <laughs> um, I, I think it's fantastic. It's, it's something that they've also, the club since then with that L.A. or, or with the hat, with the, the cap, has made that part of something they do all the time. So like whenever they announce a new player, it's that person, you know, has the reveal with the hat. Does it seem like the ambition is, is, is being fulfilled to an extent so far in, in the way the club is still using it to try and, and get this sort of universal LA symbol out there? Yeah, absolutely. And we, of course we were branding a soccer team, but, more than that, you're, you're trying to brand a city um, and you're trying to capture the spirit of a city or the spirit of a community. Um, you know, I believe a, a football club is a reflection of its community and the crest simply illustrates that reflection. Um, you know, sports, sports logos are they're avatars of self-identification for sports fans. So ideally someone from L.A., can look at the LAFC crest and say, you know, I see myself in that. And likewise, someone from Oakland can look at the Oakland Roots crest and say the same thing. Was there a moment of inspiration that you remember for LAFC when sort of the wing on the, the A came to be? Or do you remember that at all? Yep. There was a, uh, it was, yeah, there was kind of just a moment where I was uh, waiting for the bus and I was just sketching um, and I still have that sketch uh, where I just kind of like made the made the crossbar of the A into a wing and kind of thought, oh, this could work. Um, <laughs> and I, I keep that sketch in, in my drawer. Nice. That's really cool. <laughs> it's like um, a blue magic may... marker. <laughs> <laughs> um, but it doesn't always work that way. It doesn't always work that way. Really? Uh, but that was a, a, a cool kind of eureka moment. I, I That's what's sort of interesting to me because we all who do creative things. I write, you, you do design. Like I have a process for putting together a, a magazine story or a book. Um, 
where I sort of, you know, have an order or put some order on things just so it's not chaotic and I can get a structure and all that. Do you have something like that for when you started a new project? Like, like I'm going to go about this and this and this, and eventually I'll get to where I want to be. Yeah, there's a loose structure. I mean, it starts with a lot of learning and listening, listening to supporters, um, listening to the front office staff, doing research on the club, the city, the community, the state, whatever it is. Um, and then, you know, that ideas start to form then. And, you know, I've got sketchbooks upon sketchbooks filled with just nonsense ideas, but it only really takes in for football crest, it only really takes one good idea. Um, mm -hmm. So I'm constantly in search of that idea. Kind of just my responsibility is to turn over every rock uh, until I find the one that I think is going to work. You mentioned the Oakland Roots design, where your use of color is really interesting. I, the you know the top half is all in black. the The bottom half is this mosaic of color. Um, you know, even your Union Omaha design is a really interesting use of color because you have an owl in all black and white, except for a very specific yellow in the owl's eyes. How do you go about trying to use color or, or maybe not as much in some other ways or, or use it sparingly? It's a good question. Color is usually um, the first thing I talk about when I'm working with clubs. Um, mm -hmm. Sometimes colors are prescribed. Sometimes you know exactly what it's going to be what they're going to be. And sometimes you can do, um, you know, a color exercise, uh, in order to, f to figure out what will be the most suitable, um, color scheme for a club. Um, but in the case with Louisville, I think having a unique color was really important. Something that racing Louisville could really own. And if you see someone in a lavender kit, even if you can't see what the crest is, because they're on the other side of the of the park, uh, you still know that that's racing Louisville. So to be able to own that was really important. Um, but it's it's case by case. I mean, Oakland is an incredibly colorful, diverse, vibrant community. Um, so it made sense that the crest would reflect that. Are there any colors out there right now, whether it's for NWSL or MLS, that you'd like to see more of that we haven't seen much of? Absolutely, but I, I got to keep some bullets in the chamber here, Grant. <laughs> I can't, I can't spoil anything. <laughs> but yeah, there's some, there are some gaps uh, in the spectrum that need filling. So. Yeah. Well, I hope ML MLS expansion teams are listening right now uh, as we <laughs> look ahead to the next few years. I guess some of them have already announced. Um, so I know you're not able to talk in, in much detail about your in-house work at Nike and NYCFC, but your website has references to, to the amazing Nigeria Nike 2018 World Cup kit and Nike's PSG design and the NYCFC badge. Is it fair to say you were involved in those designs? And, and what can you tell me? Yeah, uh, I was involved in those designs. Um... I, I don't want to say, I, I'm not supposed to say too much, uh, or I could get a call from uh, the Nike communications department. But um, yeah, I left <laughs> Nike last year, and uh, it was a wonderful four years there. I learned so much being able to work with, uh, in my opinion, the world's best designers on uh, the world's best design team um, uh, at Nike Football, Global Football Apparel, and then at Nike New York City. Um, but yeah, I was involved in the um, the design teams for uh, for Nigeria and and France and uh, PSG and um, and that's all I'm going to say on that. <laughs> and uh, and uh, no, no, and um, yeah, I really really enjoyed my time there. Yeah, yeah, I mean, those are just classic designs. I, I think I told you earlier I did a, a whole podcast during the 2018 World Cup. Uh, on the Nigeria design. And I remember Pete Hoppins from Nike telling me in that interview that so many other national teams around the world at that point were telling him, can you, can you do Nigeria for us? From a design perspective, how hard is it to, to do something that has that kind of an impact? And is it sort of like crazy reductive to, to say, oh yeah, just give us a Nigeria kit. <laughs> Um, 
That's funny because I don't think you could take that graphic print and give it to Sweden or France <laughs> or or England. I don't think it would it would make sense. Um, it wouldn't right. uh, it wouldn't work. Um, but I, that that kit came at a time when not that many uh, clubs and federations uh, had bold, loud graphic prints. Um, mm-hmm. And it's cool to hear that um, through Pete, um, my former boss. Uh, it's cool to hear that uh, there are uh, other clubs and federations that said, uh, "Give us a bit of that." Um, even though, even if it, in my mind, it would be difficult to give uh, to give England a, 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 a loud print like that. England, who typically just wear a, a white shirt. Gotcha. Uh, makes sense. So I want to ask about your story. I mean, how how did you go about getting to do what you're doing now? Like, what's your background? Yeah. Um, well, I grew up in a family that uh, really valued the arts. Both of my parents are professional musicians. So hmm. as kids, my brothers and I, we were really encouraged um, to you know, express ourselves creatively. Um, and we lived in New York City and we lived in Minneapolis. And then in fourth grade, uh, we moved to North London. And that's where my brothers and I really fell in love with soccer. Uh, so we became Arsenal supporters, uh, which at the time was cool. And now it's painful. <laughs> um, <laughs> it was during the Invincibles era. And, you know, I just absolutely idolized Thierry Henry and Perez, Lomberg, Vieira. All, the, all, all of those guys were our heroes. Um, but that aside, you know, I was really inspired um, how the way that in the UK... Uh, the football clubs are really ingrained in their communities uh, from the top flight down to these tiny non-league clubs. Uh, the, you know, the football clubs are really a staple in, in their communities. Uh, and then I moved back, my family moved back to the U.S. Uh, for my sophomore year of high school. Um, and this is the pre-Beckham America. And I was mm-hmm. surprised and a little bummed that, uh, you know, soccer hadn't quite gained... Uh, the momentum I had hoped in the U.S. Um, so I guess I sort of made it my goal to somehow be involved in, in the growth of the game here in the U.S. Uh, and I played soccer through college, uh, but ultimately realized that uh, my role in growing the game here wouldn't be on the pitch, but uh, in the design studio. So from after college, you know, worked uh, in-house at New York City FC and Nike, as you know, uh, both in Oregon and in New York. And now I have my own studio Um, and I work with clubs at all levels of the American soccer pyramid from MLS uh, down to, you know, even the semi-pro and amateur clubs, uh, mostly designing visual identities, um, uh, crests and kits and apparel. And and did you study anything particular in college connected to this or do something different? Yep. Yep. I studied graphic design. I don't know how much work you've done in other sports or how familiar you are from talking to other people about it. I'm just wondering, is designing for the sport of soccer and soccer clubs different in any way from designing for entities in other sports? I think it is. Um, I have done a little bit of behind the scenes work um, in the uh, big four. I don't really like to say that because... I'm just envious <laughs> that soccer is not included. So I have done a little bit of behind-the-scenes work in um, in hockey and basketball, um, and it is different. Um, and part of the reason it's different is soccer is still quite young here uh, relative to um, baseball, basketball, football, and, yeah. and hockey. Um, so like I said earlier with NWSL, there's an opportunity to be creative, be different, be inspired by the global game, but still, um, be true to, uh, local communities. Um, there's not that many new basketball teams, uh, professional basketball teams, uh, popping up in the U S there's not that many new professional, hockey teams popping up in the U.S., but there are a ton of professional and semi-professional soccer teams popping up in the U.S. So so as a writer, I have things that I like and things that I know I don't like in my writing. So for example, you won't ever see me using certain words. 
I have a long list. One of them is the word icon or iconic. I just think it's overused, you know, personal taste. Are there certain things that you can feel confident saying that you would not use in your design of a soccer badge? I am cognizant of the fact that I've done quite a few circular soccer badges um, and I may okay. try to cool it on that uh, going forward. <laughs> but ultimately, it's not really about me and my portfolio at all. It's about what's best for the club and the community. Um, but I will say I am feeling a little tired of doing um, circular shaped soccer crests. Uh, <laughs> okay. But yeah. Interesting. Um, and and it, like one thing I don't see too often in your work with badges is an actual ball. In, in the couple cases where I've seen it, it's sort of an old fashioned ball. Does that ever enter your mind of, of whether like, is that, is it more rare these days to see an actual ball in a design? It's funny. I don't have strong feelings for or against either the old school looking ball or the pentagon hexagon ball um, okay. but most of the time the clubs that i work with have strong feelings um, mostly negative about um, <laughs> including a ball in the crest i i believe that there's a way to do it uh tastefully uh and stylishly um, but ultimately the um i'm serving the club and and what they want is um is important but I am aware that there's a there's an ongoing debate about uh, soccer balls in crests. A soccer crest should stand for could stand for a community way beyond the the soccer field, and stand mm -hmm. for a city or a community um, on its own. So sometimes potential having a soccer ball in a crest could potentially limit you there. So that your decision to go out on your own. I mean, it seems like it's going well. I, I... How did you sort of make that decision? Yeah, so far so good. I feel I feel um, lucky to have uh, been able to make it work so far. Um, you know, I just looked out at the American soccer landscape and did the calculation that there would be probably, I don't know, 50 new clubs between now and the 2026 World Cup and thought to myself, if I can grab a dozen or so of those branding projects, then I can make ends meet. Hey. If I ask what you want to be doing in the future, I think that sort of answers the question. But are, are there other things in particular that you'd be interested in doing down the line? I'd be interested in not being in quarantine uh, somewhere down the line. <laughs> <laughs> Me too. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, I'm going to keep doing my part to grow the game in this country and whether or not that's in the uh, design space um, remains to be seen. Um, right now, it's got some momentum doing the design, but I'm absolutely curious to explore uh, other ways that I can help grow the game here. Well, I've really enjoyed your work uh, for a long time from a distance. It's really nice to have a conversation and get to know you a little bit. Matthew Wolf, thanks for coming on the show. Thanks for having me, Grant. Thanks for listening to Football with Grant Wall. If you like the podcast, you could do me a huge favor and hit that subscribe button and provide a rating and a review. I can't tell you how much that helps. I'd like to thank Matthew Wolf. I also want to thank Taylor Rockwell and Daryl Grove of the Total Soccer Show for everything they've done to help get this show off the ground. I'm back soon with another interview of someone from the soccer world. Be safe, everyone. See you next time. Yeah.